Let's open our Bibles to where Paul was reading Ezekiel chapter 37. I've entitled the morning's message, Can a Nation Be Born in One Day? And as we make our way through the book, let's pick up our text. We'll come back and do all 14 verses as um, Ezekiel 37 is really two parables. It's divided in two. The first one is going to be our focus this morning. We'll continue with the verse by verse this Wednesday with 37, 38, and 39. So, verse 11 of chapter 37. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are their whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, and I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. We've come to um, a very unique section Um, I'd like to say we're living between the pages of chapter 37 and chapter 38 because chapter 37 is fulfilled. And uh, with Mary's update this morning, we're watching the stage being set for Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we'll be covering next week. Um, Just a quick way of review, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah were given one message For their generation, they were faithful for 40 years, telling the people exactly what they did not want to hear. That they had gone away from the Lord, they had served the idols, they had become worse in their morality than the heathen tribes that were there before they came into the land. They had corrupted themselves to such a point where the Lord says, enough, and you're going into captivity for the next 70 years. That was the message. That was the message of Jeremiah that he gave in Jerusalem and the message that Ezekiel gave to those who already are in captivity in Babylon. As we're making our way through, there's probably about three sections you could divide Ezekiel into. Uh, One to 24, uh, them ministering before the fall, telling them it's gonna happen. And, of course, they had the false prophets saying, just blowing them off and just saying, don't worry about a thing. God would would never think about destroying the temple. Unheard of. It's just not going to happen. So this went back and forth for their their lifetime. But eventually, um, judgment came. And Jerusalem and Solomon's temple were destroyed. That would be the second division of the book. And then in chapters 25 to 32, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, probably um, the most authoritative dictator the world has ever known. I like to say if he said it was Monday and it was Tuesday, well, it was Monday. That's the authority that that he had. Uh, The Medes and the Persians who conquered him did not have that same amount of authority that Nebuchadnezzar did. But Nebuchadnezzar, 
now brings judgment on the surrounding nations of Israel. Uh, They actually gloated that uh, Jerusalem had fallen. Um, Cities like Tyre and Sidon, Edom, Moab, Egypt, uh, Philistia uh, were all conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. The unthinkable happened on the 9th of Av in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar burned to the ground probably the most beautiful structure there that ever existed, Solomon's Temple. The unthinkable had actually taken place. Now, in 70 AD, let's fast forward to the what we would call Herod's Temple. They were 70 years in captivity. They did come back. They started to rebuild the temple again. When the old men saw it, they wept. And when the young men saw it, they rejoiced. Now the old men were weeping because they remember how beautiful and glorious Solomon's temple was. But the young guys, they were just happy that they had a temple. But we're not not talking apples and apples here. There was they were as different as you could get. One was so beautiful and glorious. When Herod came around in Jesus' time, um, he was a master craftsman, a master builder. And it says he greatly enlarged the temple. That's why when Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again, they thought they were talking about the temple. Build it. He says, you're crazy. They've been, we've been working on this for 26 years. You're going you're gonna to rebuild it in three days? But he was, of course, talking about the temple of his body. And then in Luke 19, he goes on and prophesies. And here's the importance, what Mary was talking about this morning, the importance of churches leaving the teaching of Bible prophecy. Because what happens is it'll catch you unaware. And what is the Lord always asking us to do in the last days? But watch. Well, unless we're informed of what to watch for, how can we watch and Bible prophecy is all about watching. It's either happening or it's not. Good place for an amen. amen. So we put emphasis only on Bible prophecy because we teach the whole Bible. One third of the Bible is Bible prophecy. You have to deal with the subject. You have to deal with the issues at hand if you're going to be true to the book. So Jesus prophesied in 30, um, 32 AD, 33 AD, somewhere in there, that that temple would be destroyed. And his prophecy came true. He said there will not be one stone left upon another stone because you didn't know Bible prophecy. Another way of saying you didn't know the time of my coming implication You were supposed to know the time of my coming. Daniel told you to the exact day. And if you would have been a student of prophecy, you would have known that you don't have the peace that could have been yours. I wanted you to have it. I wanted wanted to gather you under my wings just like a mother chicken uh, brings her little chicks underneath it. I wanted to do that. I wanted you to have peace. But John 1.11 says he came into his own and his own rejected him. And so he told them, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that is going to happen. I was talking to my friend uh, Chris this last week, Quintana, who's going to be one of the speakers at our conference. He says, yep, we're off to Israel next week. And I go, oh man, <laughs> jealous. <laughs> he 
He says, yeah, we're going to stay a day in the Dead Sea, but then we're going down to a lot. And when, as soon as he said that, I knew that you don't go there unless you go to Petra. I said, you're going to Petra, man? He goes, yeah, we're going to Petra. And um, the reason that's significant is that that is the place, according to Isaiah 16, and other places where the remnant will be taken and taken care of. And that's where they call out on the Lord. After three and a half years of being protected from the Antichrist, um, they will call out on the Lord. And Hosea says when they call out on him that they're actually fulfilling. When Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's going to say that. And then you're going to have Isaiah 63, I think, fulfilled it, where it says, who is this who's coming from Basra with his garments stained all red? Basra is another name for Petra. Selah, Isaiah chapter 16, is another name for Petra. So, yes, it's, it's a, a wonderful place to visit, but the, the biblical part of it in Scripture is timely, Hopefully everybody here is saved and born again. You've given your life to Christ. And uh, we'll be having, we'll be watching this from the balcony. <laughs> and uh, won't be having, you know, the seat that's there. But it's a huge city. Uh, the little bit that I touched on there, they have a huge amphitheater um, that um, is in Petra. Anyway, that's not my notes. That, and I have to keep, keep on track here. But... In 70 AD, Solomon's temple was destroyed on the 9th of Av. Herod's temple, just as Jesus predicted, was destroyed also on the 9th of Av in 70 AD by the Roman legions. After that, they were dispersed, except for a handful of zealots that made it up to Masada and held off the Romans for a couple of years. Um, They were defeated. And from 70 AD till for almost 2,000 years, that we call it the dysphoria, or the disbursement, that Jews were dispersed into every part of the world. And during that time, the land became desolate, became filled with swamps. And as we look at chapter 37, as we look at this particular chapter, it's about them coming back into the land. 35, 36 touched on it, and I'll go back in just a bit. But now he's gone from a message of judgment, you're going into captivity, where now he's switching and also talking about the hope that Israel has. And I made mention, I can't get into it too long, it's a little bit too long of a story, about David Hawking actually being the first tour group, going into the oldest synagogue in Israel, when uh, Masada fell, and uh, the scroll that they found under the rock was open to Ezekiel 36, they knew. They knew they were coming back even though they were going to be defeated as a people somehow, some way, against all odds. And really it is against all odds because no ethnic group has ever been out of their own nation for one generation to two without being assimilated into that culture except for the Jewish people. They've been scattered in all parts of the world, but then Ezekiel says he's going to bring them back. Now, lest we be confused here, 
Um, yes, he's encouraging them that they'll come back from the Babylonian captivity, but that's not what we have in view in chapter 37. Let me read uh, Isaiah 11, verse 11. This is a prophecy. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of the people who are left. Well, what's the first time? Well, he brought them back from Babylon. Well, the second time that they've been out of the nation was in 70 A.D. To recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria, Egypt, uh, Egypt, from Cush, Elam, Sinar, from Hamath, to the islands of the sea. Notice Babylon isn't mentioned here. And he will set up a banner of the nations, and he will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Not one country, Babylon. But once they've been dispersed a second time, he's going to bring them back a second time. And, um, oh my goodness, I get sidetracked here. Imagine trying to teach the book of Revelation and knowing what it's mostly about Israel. And let's say you're a Bible teacher in, in uh, the 1700s or the 1800s or even earlier. And you've got to talk about the book of Revelation, which primarily from chapter 6 is all about Israel. But the problem is there is no Israel. So what do you do with it? Well, it's too difficult to understand. It's allegorical. It's a battle against light, against darkness. But there were some hard-nosed, Bible-believing, non-compromising Bible teachers that it says, we don't know, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen because God says it's going to happen even though we don't have the understanding. So what happened in my denomination and in mainline Roman Catholicism, they came up with what's referred to as replacement theology. The Jews are obviously nowhere to be found. And uh, therefore, the promises that God made to Israel, they're now given to the church. And as far as the book of Revelation, it's just um, an, an allegory that a battle between light and darkness. No, it's an extremely in-depth, detailed book to the most minutest detail. Phrases from the Old Testament, they have one line. You'll have a whole chapter in the book of Revelation. It's the only book that says I'm special. Read this book, verse, chapter 1, verse 3, because he says I'm blessed. And then the warning at the end of it says, be careful that you don't add to it and that you don't take away from it. Because if you do, then I'm going to add to you the uh, judgments that are written in this book. I suppose now is a good time to let the cat out of the bag. We're going to be done in Ezekiel in a couple weeks. What's our next book? Daniel. Looking forward to getting into it? Me too. Here's the deal. I don't do Daniel without doing Revelation at the same time. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to continue going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible on Sunday morning in Daniel. But on Wednesday night, I'm teaching the book of Revelation. So they, they two go hand in hand. But don't worry, we're going to come back and we'll get into the minor prophets afterwards. But the two go together so much like this that instead of um, going right, we'll still go through, through Daniel on Sunday morning. But on Wednesday nights, um, we will be taking on the book of, book of Revelation. There you go. Cats out of the bag on that one. <laughs> now, if... If you 
turn to um, chapter 35 there. Let's look at our text this morning, the vision of the dry bones. Chapter 37 are two parables telling the same story. Let's pick it up in verse one. It says, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And he sent me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them around and behold, there was very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. And so he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And so I answered, oh, Lord, you know, meaning I don't. And he said to them, prophesy to these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you will live. I will put sinews in you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and You shall live, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, and there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon the feet an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we must, ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves. I will cause you to come up out of your graves. I will bring you back into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves out out of the peoples and brought you into your Uh, from your graves and I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will place you in your own land and then you will know that I the Lord have spoken it and performed it says the Lord I look back at verse 4 oh dry bones hear the word of the Lord you know that's a chorus to the old Negro spiritual I actually took the time to look it up Toe bone connected to the foot bone. <laughs> foot bone connected to the heel bone. Heel bone connected to the ankle bone. Ankle bone connected to the skit, shin bone. Shin bone connected to the knee bone. Knee bone connected to the thigh bone. Thigh bone connected to the hip bone. Hip bone connected to the rock and roll bone. It's hip. You see, it was a hip bone. That was never, never mind. Never. Back backbone connected to the shoulder bone. Shoulder bone connected to the neck bone, neck bone connected to the head bone. Now hear the word of the Lord. That part here they took from verse 4. Now hear the word of the Lord, O dry bones. Now this actually happened. And um, you say it's impossible. Well, that's the point. It's impossible for an ethnic group to be out so long and then actually come back. And the Lord's saying, I'm going to bring you back. And, um, you know, it seemed like the most impossible thing that could ever happen. 
Now during this time, we, towards, um, since the 1900s, we've gone through two major world wars, World War I and World War II. And we only learned the horrible truth of the atrocities that were committed at places like Auschwitz and Birkenau and six to seven million Jews literally exterminated for being Jewish. At this time, Britain would have had control of what we call that part of the Middle East today. I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66, the very last book of Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 books in it. And I want to draw your attention to verses 7 and 8. And I got the name of the message this morning, Can a Nation Be Born in a Day from Isaiah 66? In verse 7 it says, Before she travailed, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child who had, who has heard such a thing, who has seen such things. Shall the earth be made to give birth in a day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she gave birth to her children. After World War II, something unique happened. Hitler was dead. The war came to an end with um, the bombing of Hiroshima. And it was a softening in the heart of the world when they discovered these concentration camps, how humans could do such things. And the anti-Semitism that was so strong in Europe, there was a softening. And to the point where there was a moment of time, there's a man named Lord Bellflower who got involved in the political system to the point where he made a declaration that's called the Bellflower Declaration. And let me just read just a little bit about it. It called for a place for the Jews after World War II to have their own homeland. Isaiah prophesied that Israel would become a nation again and that would happen in one day. Bible passages like the ones we just read, Isaiah 66, 7, and 8, um, written between 701 and 681 B.C., was actually fulfilled in 1948. In Isaiah 67, 7, and 8, the prophet foreshadowing the rebirth of Israel, which happened in one day, the woman giving birth before going into labor represents Israel. This accurately describes what happened on May 14, 1948, when David Ben-Gurion, the Jews declared their independence for Israel as a united and sovereign nation for the first time in 2,900 years. During that same day, the United States issued a statement recognizing Israel's sovereignty, and only hours before had the UN mandated, its mandate expired that had given the Brits control. Now this is all happening within an hour. Britain was losing its control, its mandate, over the land. During a 24-hour span of time, foreign control of the land of Israel had formally ceased, and Israel had declared its independence, and its independence was acknowledged by other nations, 
Modern Israel was literally born in a single day. In other words, God used what Hitler did during World War II to bring about one of his end-time prophecies. Isaiah said the birth would take place before there would be labor pains, and that too is precisely what happened. A movement called Zionism. What's a Zionist? The Zionists are those who want to go back and inhabit the land of Israel. Zionism began in the 1800s to encourage Jews worldwide to move to Israel, which at that time was called Palestine. Just a little side note here. It was in 135 AD that Emperor Hadrian changed the name from Israel to Palestine, only for spite, but that's why it was called Palestine. Within hours of the Declaration of Independence in 1948, Israel was attacked by the surrounding countries of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. When reading Isaiah 66, 7, and 8, keep in mind that Israel's status as a sovereign nation uh, was established and reaffirmed during the course of one single day, and that it was born out of a movement called Zionism, and that its declaration of independence was not the result of a war, but rather the cause of one. And so what we read back here in um, Isaiah, we see the suffering that took place, that softened the world's heart, the perfect timing that the UN's mandate with, with Britain being over it was over. They saw their opportunity, and they seized it, and... David Ben-Gurion on May 14th, 1948. That's only a couple of months away. They've been in the land. This May 14th, it'll be 69 years. Next year, it'll be 70, if we're still here. <laughs> Good place for an amen, huh? <laughs> or hallelujah, whatever you want. Huh? The suffering I want to deal with, because I've been to Auschwitz several times, three times, and I've been to Yad Vashem, many, many times, that walks you through the whole history. Words can't describe it. And um, it's just, um, it just can't, it's beyond human description. It's probably one of the worst tragedies that the world has ever known. And what I'm about to suggest to you as you turn to Psalm 102, a couple years ago we had a, a, a journalist who was into prophecy named David Dolan with us, he's from Israel. And as you look at the Psalms, there are different kinds of Psalms. There's what we call the acrostic Psalms. Uh, You'll find that an acrostic Psalm will have uh, 22 verses to it because each one of the the Psalms will start with a Hebrew letter. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And then we have um, you know, the songs of sorrow that David would, would cry out, songs of repentance. Um, I think it's Psalm 53 was one where the Lord was dealing with him with his sin with Bathsheba. But there's also messianic psalms or prophetic psalms. And let me just give you two. I could give you many. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing? 
It's all about the nations of the world gathering to fight God at the Battle of Armageddon. And you're only past, you're only going through one psalm, and already you're talking Bible prophecy in Psalm 2. Well, then you have Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you read it through, my, my tongue is caught to the top of my roof, and all, all my bones are showing, and they pierce my hands and my feet. Well, it's prophetic, and it's, it's written in the Psalms. David Dolan, who, and I'm not dogmatic on this, and neither is he, actually believes that Psalm 102 is about the Holocaust. And as I read it through, um, there's two reasons I'm, I'm reading it, to show the suffering that they went through as a people, that um, it also talks about the last generation. So the first part of it here, let me just tell you a little bit about David. Um, David Dolan is an American journalist who has lived and worked in Jerusalem since 1980. In his most recent book, Israel in Crisis, What Lies Ahead, he tells the reader that he gets many questions dealing with modern Israel's rebirth as a sign that was prophesied at the end of the ages upon us. The one portion of scripture that he quotes to verify this belief to those that ask the question is Psalm 102. After a time of personal study, he has come to the belief that this particular psalm predicted the Holocaust and the subsequent restoration of Jerusalem and that the generation that witnessed these events will also be the generation that sees the coming back of the Lord to reign in the holy city. Now, let's just pick up a couple here so you can get a feel for this. And he gets into the Hebrew, and I wish I had time to take what we've taken in the English, where he'll take it and put the literal Hebrew word there. Case in point, verse 3. It says, for my days are consumed like smoke. The better translation there is, my days are consumed in smoke. My heart is stricken within me like grass so that I've forgotten to eat my bread. Because of the sounds of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I'm like a pelican in the wilderness. I'm like an owl in the desert. I lie awake and I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetops. My enemies reproach me all day long and those who deride me swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread. And of course you know that in the concentration camps. After they were gassed, they were burned. And the ashes fell on the city of Auschwitz like it was snowing outside. And so these verses here, it's a whole study within itself. Actually, David gave that study when he was at one of our prophecy conferences several years back. But it changes from that tone to hope that even though they're going through this pain, just like we read earlier, that it's going to be changed as Ezekiel's trying to give them hope. Yes, you're going into judgment, but God is going to bring you back into the land, just as if bones that came out of graves, I'm going to do it. But this deals with the suffering that caused the people of the world for a moment to be open to the idea that Israel deserves its own 
the people of Israel deserve their own homeland. So let's pick it up um, in verse 12, I guess. But you, O Lord, endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations, for you will arise and have mercy on Zion. For the time to favor her, yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. Oh, it's hard for me not to get sidetracked. Don't do it, Dwight. Okay, I will. (laughs) If you live in Israel, you have to build your house with Jewish stones. You can't build, there's no other building material. Every house is built with Jewish stones. And when it talks about the hue here, takes pleasure in the stones that, and show favor to her dust, the, the word there is actually a hue. And if you get up early in the morning and watch the sun come up over the Mount of Olives, it shines this beautiful pink hue on the stones of Jerusalem as you're looking at the eastern gate because it's all Jerusalem stone. If you're watching the sun set from the other side, from the Mediterranean, and you're looking at the city, there's this golden hue um, that's there. So when it reads here, your servants take pleasure in her stones, it's, it's an incredible sight because it's the law. You, you can't build unless you use Jerusalem stone. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and the kings of the earth your glory. Now, verse 16, I, I'm reading out of the New King James. And um, this is one of the places where they got a word wrong. I have, for the Lord shall build up Zion. The King James has it right. It says, when the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. And then it goes on to say, he shall regard the, the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer For this will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created will praise the Lord. This is where David Dolan does, and this is a little bit of time on the Hebrew where I'll get into this rendition. This passage that we just read here in verse 15 through 18, um, David Dolan claims is proof text to show that the generation that saw the Holocaust would be the same generation that saw the restoration of Zion. Note the last sentence where the Hebrew word akaron has been translated to come. Dolan takes a position that this should be translated as last to stay true to the original Hebrew, which reads last generation, ador akaron. According to the Strong's Dictionary, akaron means hinder, generally late or last. Uh, it can be translated either last or come. Ekeron is translated at least 20 times in the King James Version and eight times as to come. There is actually a variation of Ekeron that means come or another, but it is spelled as Ekerat. For all the translations that I have rendered the verse as meaning a generation that is to come or a latter generation, none of them give the meaning of a last generation, although the word is akaron or akaron, and it could mean that. It would have been, and this is very important, it would have been a dare 
move indeed for any translator to render the word as I just imagined. Dolan simply says they wimped out. On giving the literal Hebrew translation of verse 18, stating that the implications of the actual Hebrew phrase as enormous. Absolutely. Because it's saying here that when you see that generation, it would be the last generation. He says they wimped out. I agree with him. In other words, Dolan believes that the generation of Jews that saw and or experienced the Holocaust would be the last generation before the end of the age. The final generation of history as we know it. It would be this Holocaust generation that would live to see the restoration of, of Zion and coming uh, to the Lord to reign on his city. So the generation that saw that would see um, the fulfillment of these things. I wonder if the Lord ever had anything to say about that. I'm glad you asked that question this morning. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 revolves around a question that the disciples asked Jesus about the last days. And they said, in verse three, Lord, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? What I want to point out is sign is singular, not plural. But the Lord gives us uh, many signs, uh, wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, um, false prophets, false teachers, talks about the abomination of desolation, where they're going to run to. He said it'll be the worst time the world has ever known. There's never going to be a time like it. And unless he directly returns, no flesh should be saved. So he's talking about the great tribulation. But that wasn't the question that the disciples asked him. What is the sign? There's one parable in Matthew 24, and it is in verse 32. We call it the parable of the fig tree. And here, in answering um, the question, he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. Always a, a symbol of Israel. When his branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, then you know that summer is near. Well, I know on May 15th, two things happen. Three things happen. Two things happen. There's probably a lot of things that happen on May 15th. The leaves come out, and so do the lake flies. I'm from Oshkosh, so I know that for sure. But it's also right around that time... Um, is it Mother's Day around that time too? Yeah, and I knew, I knew there was three. I just couldn't think of the third one. We're going to have Bruce Carroll with us on that Sunday morning. And now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branches already become tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, what? The fig tree blossoming. Israel coming back, know that it is near at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And then to put an emphasis on it, he says, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but not what I just said. But my word will by no means pass away. Slam dunk, guys. It's going to happen. Nothing's going to stop it from happening. And so, you know, You know, is Israel budding today? 
And when, when the Zionists came back, the guides always tell us a story. When we get to the uh, Hula Valley going north, and you see all the agriculture and the beauty of the country, uh, it was one swamp, and the land was desolate. And they formed communities called kibbutzes, and each kibbutz was known for its own unique thing that they were involved with. Maybe it was a dairy kibbutz. Uh, maybe it was an industrial kibbutz. Uh, Moshe Dion, the guy with the black patch, one of Israel's generals, was one of the first children born in a kibbutz at the southern end of, of the um, Sea of Galilee. And from nothing, when they came back, they began to work the land. Now we're just talking 69 years. And when it uses the term, when you see Israel budding, um, I didn't read this, and I should have, but I'm going to go back to it. You just hold that thought. I'm going back to um, Ezekiel 36 and read verses 34, which we were supposed to do. 34 says, The desolate land shall be tilled, instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And the nations which are left all around shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Well, that's a simple question. Either he did or he didn't. Either Israel is there or it's not. Either it has blossomed and bloomed or it hasn't. And all you have to do is look. I mean, it was one of the biggest events ever that Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, had his most gracious invitation to our country, ever. And um, it was a love fest between Trump and him. And um, sharing that we will help any way we can. Our assets are your assets, and so on and so forth. Well, from nothing, I'll, I'll be coming back to this next week when we talk about the Ezekiel 38 war, because the Bible tells us that when they come, they come to take a spoil. And for years, you look at Israel, and you go, why would anyone even want this piece of property? Swamps and, and wilderness, nothing there. This is just a short list, and I'm going to repeat it next week. First of all, as far as material assets of Israel, and I'm, this is the tip of the iceberg here, just in, within the last 10 years, last time we were there, we actually saw this production. Now, they have a natural gas potential in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Leviathan gas field, they call it, Estimate, estimated 16 trillion cubic feet. That's 450 billion cubic meters of natural gas. The potential for oil, also just recently discovered on the Golan Heights. There's a corporation called Zion Oil and, and, and Gas. You can go on the website. The strata of this oil field is 350 meters thick. The average strata of a good oil find is 20 to 30 meters thick, 10 times bigger than the average oil field. The potash that they take out of the Dead Sea was their main resource for years. And um, they still use it. Some of the best cosmetics in the world, Ahava, still come out of Israel. Matter of fact, it is the best. 
exceeds 30 million tons per year because of the salt contents and the evaporation and the, and the emollients and all, the, all that's in the richness of the Dead Sea. It's the lowest place on the planet Earth. Um, fruit and agriculture. Over 40 types of fruit are grown. It's the world leader per size in agriculture. Only 20% of the land is available or suitable for farming, and yet they have that status as the fourth largest producer of fruit in the world, state size of New Jersey. As far as technology, they're the most developed sector, the highest number of scientists and techs per capita, 140 per 10,000 employees. Tourism at an all-time high, um, Mostly when, when we go there now, it's uh, Asians, Japanese, Chinese that are filling them. Not so, Americans are still there, but not. Um, every year they're rising. From 2016 uh, to 2017, there was a 22% rise in tourism. When we go there, one of the main industries is that of the cutting of diamonds. And so we have the diamond center of the world actually right there, in Tel Aviv. It's one of the world's third major cities in polishing diamonds along with Belgium and India. I've entitled the morning's message, Can a Nation Be Born in a Day? And what the scripture says about it. So I'll close with a simple question. Either it happened or it didn't. Either it's there or it's not. Either they came there beyond all odds of that it could ever exist because it's never happened before with any other ethnic group of people. Did Israel become a nation in one day? Yes, it certainly did. And Jesus said to his disciples, question, the generation that sees the rebirth of the nation of Israel will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. Mary helped us connect some dots this morning as we see the pieces coming together. Oh, we know what's going to happen. We know the Lord's taking us out of here before it all hits the fan. And that we're not going to be here to have to wonder about whether or not we're going to have to take the mark of the beast or not. But, again, we are told to watch. So that's why we have prophecy updates. And that's why if you just teach through the Bible simply, you're going to run across Ezekiel 37, which talks about an impossibility something that was dead, bones. I'm going to bring them all back together. That's you, Israel, and I'm going to put life back into you, but not only that, I'm going to prosper you, and not only that, I'm going to give you Bob Dylan, Captain Kirk, and Spock all at the same time. <laughs> you pick any, any organization, ethnic group, I don't care if it's economics, political, or music, and you'll find a Jew at the top of the ladder. They're special. They're God's chosen people. I have no problem with that. They have more brain cells than we do. Can anybody say amen to that? It's true. I don't think it's fair, but it's true. May God bless his word as you see these things, and may it give you hope that the Bible, from the beginning and today, lays it all out. And when the Lord says, then they will know that I am the Lord, the next thing on the prophetic calendar is what we'll be tackling next week. So let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. The excitement, 
we rejoice in. But Lord, when we think about what it took to bring about this change, the atrocities, the suffering of your people during the Holocaust, that actually led to the opening of the door to reestablishing your people. Lord, if anybody ever needs to see a modern-day miracle, all they have to do is look at the land that you promised them, and they're there. And are they budding, and are they flourishing? We've been there, and we know it's true. So, Lord, we thank you, and we pray that you would um, bless those who bless Israel, and that you would curse those who curse Israel. We, Lord, stand in blessing and praying for your people. And we just uh, thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.